Thank you, Olivette. Father, I pray that you would speak to us afresh this day. We pray that you would feed us on your word, which is living bread, amidst all the feasting and eating and drinking of the next few days. I pray that it would be your word, your Bible, these holy scriptures that would speak to us and nourish us above all other things. And we pray that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit that Christ may be born afresh in us. Amen. Amen. The vicar of St. Martin in the Fields over in um, central London, Reverend Dr. Sam Wells, talks about uh, the difference between God for us and God with us. Let me explain what he means. We often think about God for us. We think about what God has done for us. And Christians are very good at saying what God has done for us. God has died on the cross for our sins. God has risen to new life uh, for us to have uh, access into new life ourselves. We talk about God as an atoning sacrifice. We think primarily about what God has done for us at Easter. And, And of course, all of that is good and true. But Christmas is a celebration not principally of anything that God does for us, but rather is about God with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. It's interesting, there's all kinds of things in the world that we might need, but there are all kinds of places where we can find those needs met, and it's not always obvious to people that we need God for anything. I don't know about your friends at school or college or work, they they may well feel like, I don't need God for anything. Do I need God for anything? I don't know. I've got a home, and I've got a job, and I've got friends and family, and I've got money in the bank. Um, And even if I don't have money in the bank, maybe there'll be some support systems and benefits, or if I'm ill, I've got an NHS. And there's all kinds of ways in which, as a society, we actually do all kinds of things for one another and meet one another's needs. And, of course, that's true. But we do live in an age, in a society, in which loneliness is reaching epidemic proportions. And although we live in one of the busiest cities in the world, and although over these coming days, many of you, I hope, will be spending uh, the days with friends or with family and with other members, there'll be a sense of community and togetherness and fellowship. Nonetheless, more and more people are experiencing profound loneliness, profound isolation. And perhaps that's why at Christmas time, our Christian message might have a new resonance, a new power when we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. God who doesn't sit remote in heaven, removed far from earthly problems, but God who comes and meets us, God who lives among us. We do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with us. We have a God who has lived among us and experienced many of the same things we experience. That's why in The book of Hebrews, the writer says in 4.15, we don't have a high priest, Jesus, who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. 
In other words, this message of Christmas, this message of Emmanuel, God with us, could have really profound resonance for the people that you see at work or at college or at school, people who are lonely, people who don't know whether they are loved, valued, liked, appreciated, people who don't know whether they are lonely now or whether they will just be lonely for the rest of their lives. We have a God who has promised never to leave nor forsake us, a God accessible to us in prayer, in worship, in scriptures, in one another. We have a God who is with us. But today I want to think a bit more about this idea of God for us. Less God with us, though I think that's an important point. A bit more about God for us. But I want to turn it on its head. There's a famous JFK quote. Uh, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States in the 60s, um, who said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I wonder this Christmas whether rather than thinking about what God can do for us, we might think and consider today what we can do for our God. Now, I don't mean to say by this that God needs anything from us, um, as though God were kind of dependent on us for something. God is entirely self-sufficient. God is complete in and of himself. God didn't create us because he was feeling lonely and needed us. God didn't create us because he needed minions to be servants. God created us out of love and out of delight and out of pleasure and gave us freedom. God doesn't need us, but God does want us. He does desire us. So God doesn't need anything from us. We don't have to do great things for God to earn his approval. We don't have to live heroic Christian lives, which certainly comes as a relief to me and I'm sure to you as well. Um, but perhaps there are some things that we could speak about as doing for God, which are important in his plans. And I want to explain what I mean by talking about a teenage mother and her baby. You might see the connection. It's fairly obvious, isn't it? Uh, on Christmas Eve when we're thinking about Mary and her newborn baby. I've got a picture of a teenage mother and her baby just to kind of give us something to have in our mind. A, a young girl, nobody really knows for certain, but Mary was probably 13, 14, 15, adolescent. Anyone here 13, 14, 15? A few, maybe, in that sort of age range, or some of you very close to it, some of you slightly further away from that age range than once you were. Um, but I won't name any names. Anybody who has ever been involved in parenting or having a newborn baby to care for knows, as well as I do, that children can be our teachers. Children can be their parents' instructors. Any parent will know how caring for their children has enabled them to develop new skills and new aspects of their character, previously unformed. Because newborn babies have a whole load of needs. They require feeding, they require cleaning when they have um, wet themselves or soiled themselves, they require comforting when they are in pain or upset, when they have a bellyache, maybe they need winding, they need stimulating to encounter the world around them. They are relentlessly demanding parents. Can I get a witness? As they say, yes, yep. <laughs> Newborn babies, children, 
even teenagers, some may say are relentlessly demanding. It takes resilience, energy, and patience. Feeding a newborn baby in the middle of the night, cleaning a dirty nappy five minutes after changing the last one, getting up and getting on with the day after a night of broken sleep. Parenting is, if you've never done it, um, let this be a word of warning to you. Parenting is the most energizing and exhausting job in the world. It's the most rewarding and the most frustrating. Every extreme of emotion comes into parenting. Now, many parents suffer extreme stress, and some even suffer depression, because it's such difficult work. And you don't get paid for it, and very few people recognize you for it. It goes largely unappreciated. But parents do gain a whole load of new resources, a whole load of new skills, a whole load of new characteristics and attributes as they learn the resilience, the patience, the compassion, the tenacity as they go on. And in addition to this, parents also learn about themselves. Parents, and some of you in this room will know what I mean by this, are confronted by our selfishness, by our impatience, by our anger. It can be terrifying to realize just what great sinners we truly are. But you see, through all of this, through parenting, adults develop patience, forgiveness, resilience, strength, determination, compassion, kindness, gentleness. They develop, in other words, the capacity to love. Now, this is not a course um, exclusive to those who are biological parents. Anybody who's involved in caring for newborn babies or young children will know something of what this means. Perhaps some of you are uh, older sister or older brother to somebody in the same situation, and you know what I mean. The point is that through this, through the care and attention we give, we develop the capacity to love. Because love is not simply an emotion. Love is a way of life. It's a way of treating one another. And children teach us how to love. So let's consider then for a moment what it means for God to come in the flesh and live among us as a newborn baby. There's a newborn baby, pretty vulnerable, pretty helpless, full of needs and requirements. Cute, ugly, all at the same time. Well, what does it mean? It means that Mary, probably an adolescent girl, probably the age of some of you here, and Joseph, we don't know how old he was, having their first child to care for would suddenly have to develop all of these attributes. And they were probably without many of the parental support mechanisms that we might hope for or expect. They've had to travel away from the family home to the ancestral home, so they don't necessarily have granny or auntie on hand to help them out. They have to just figure it out, get on with it. Imagine yourself there, terrified, I've never done this before. I don't even have a midwife. There's no maternity unit. There's no health visitor. You're going to have to figure this out. No breastfeeding counselors. You're just going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to work it out. And quite aside from this, you know, they are, they're, they're, in a, they're in a crowded um, family room in a house in Bethlehem. And before long, they have to flee into Egypt as refugees. Think perhaps about some of those young adults fleeing places like Syria or internally displaced within Africa. Think of South Sudan at the moment and those who are fleeing the country, fleeing to safer areas, perhaps with newborn babies. Just consider within all of this the, 
the relentless reality of a newborn child who needs, demands um, care and attention. It's an extraordinary thing that God should adopt such a vulnerable and precarious way of life. Because God could have contracted an illness and died before the cross. That's an extraordinary possibility, isn't it? God could have been neglected and maltreated by Mary and Joseph, as tragically so many children are. God himself, in the person of Jesus, had to learn patience and kindness and compassion and determination through Mary and Joseph, through his earthly parents during his childhood. Now, countless studies show that the resilience of children, their capacity to deal with whatever uh, life throws at them, is formed by the attachments they make with their parents and by the example of their parents in their early years. Mary and Joseph played a crucial role in enabling Jesus to develop the determination, the resilience, the capacity for all that God was calling him to in his in his public ministry. Think about that time later in the Gospels when Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and he walked on towards his death. When he bore the pain of beating and crucifixion, what was it that gave him the resilience? What was it that enabled him to endure all that? Well, it was to some extent those early childhood years with Mary and Joseph which helped to form godly character. How extraordinary. How extraordinary. So a newborn baby can teach us compassion, grace, forgiveness, endurance, patience. But a teenage girl can also teach us something. Some of the most extraordinary words in the passage that Olivet read to us come at the very conclusion. Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, or behold, the servant of, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. These are perhaps the most wonderful words for any Christian to pray. They communicate such depth of trust and obedience. Now, I don't know about how you're feeling. Christmas for me, well, it comes every year, doesn't it? And sometimes you're like, same old, same old, been here, done that. And oh, I've got to come up with some more Christmas sermons can't use last year's they might remember it I know you won't but you never know um what did I do five years ago that'll everyone will have forgotten that maybe I can refresh that you're kind of constantly sort of trying to carve out time to think afresh about what Christmas means and, and there's presents to be wrapped and I don't know how you're what you're thinking about for the rest of the day maybe some of you got some to-do list items outstanding some food to prepare some last minute shopping some more presents to wrap all that kind of stuff the busyness of Christmas can crowd out any space for Jesus, can't it? The busyness of just getting through the days, the, you know, the fights over the TV remote or the, you know, what, who's recording what. I've only got two channels I can record simultaneously and there's five programs that people want to watch. You know, all of that sort of stuff. It can crowd out any space for us as Christians to spend any time reflecting on what's really going on. For me, this year, not just now in this moment, but hopefully in the quieter moments later today and tonight and tomorrow and through the coming days, I want this to be my prayer again. Behold, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think that's a wonderful prayer 
for every Christian. Mary truly is a brilliant example of how we can respond with trust and obedience to God. And this attitude that she displays here, I imagine, was carried on through Jesus' childhood in his family home. I imagine that Jesus was brought up in his family home always to trust and obey the command of God. And it was this depth of trust that was formed in him through the witness and example of Mary, his mother, that enabled him to endure the cross, knowing and trusting that divine love was more powerful than the grave. Think about the night before Jesus died in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus pray? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane is very similar to this prayer of Mary. It's very similar in terms of tone. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be your will, not mine. They're both words, prayers of trust and obedience. They remove our own priorities and agendas from the center of the picture. And they make space to let God be God. So a newborn baby can be our teacher. A teenage mother can be our teacher. Now I claimed at the beginning that there may be some things that we can do for God this Christmas. And in in my mind I was thinking a bit about the way in which Mary and Joseph had to do things for God, the newborn baby, cleaning, feeding, comforting. We don't have to care for God as a newborn baby. Only Joseph and Mary had that special call. But we do care for other people. We care for children, adults, the elderly, the sick. We care for one another in times of need. And in doing so, we care for people who are made in God's image. In doing so, we do something for God. Think of that time in Matthew 25 where Jesus said that whenever we care for the sick, we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, or we visit those in prison, it's as though we've done it for him. There's a sense in which whenever we care for another person, and especially when it's costly and tiring, we are caring for God. We are doing something for God. And like Mary, we can also live lives of trust and obedience for God. That will be our witness. That will be how God can be revealed to a world that needs to know its saviour, its healer, its comforter, its ruler. Actually, when you're going through a difficult time at university or at work, when you're struggling in a relationship, when you're struggling with your finances, your capacity to trust and to obey God will be a witness amongst your friends, a witness amongst your family, a witness amongst your neighbours. Some of you are going to battle with grief and bereavement. Some of you are going to battle with relationship breakdowns. Some of you are going to battle with immigration issues, housing issues. And other people will resort to, you know, feeling terribly stressed and anxious and some will try and take matters into their own hands. But when you trust and obey, you reveal in the world a powerful alternative, another way, a better way. We can do that for God, to reveal him. But the truth of the matter is that when we think we are doing things for God, actually it turns out that he's really doing them for us after all. 
Because as we care for one another compassionately, as we serve tirelessly, when we give generously, God, it turns out, is using these things to transform us that we might be more like him. We are being transformed into his likeness. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 3, we're being transformed into his likeness. Into the likeness of his son who has given and done everything for us and for our salvation. So that actually when we think we're doing things for God, he's making us more like him and transforming us and using those things we do, those offerings we have to make us more like him, to reflect his love. As we receive the gift of Emmanuel this Christmas, God with us, God is with us profoundly. We also find that he is for us in every way. How does this happen? Well, all we need to do is receive him. Just as Mary simply had to be obedient and receive Jesus. As the Christmas carol puts it, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Jesus says in Revelation 3, Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. He's speaking about our lives, about our hearts. Jesus stands at the door of your life and mine and he knocks relentlessly, waiting for us to open the door and let him in and receive him. If we will open our lives to him, we find that he is with us and he is for us in every imaginable way. So let's stand together and pray.